0: Welcome back to this edition of YCT Matters, Yankee Institute's podcast. And we are joined once again by Dr. Gerald Gunderson, Shelby Cullum Davis, Professor of American Business and Economic Enterprise and Director of the Shelby Cullum Davis Endowment at Trinity College Emeritus and Yankee Institute board member. In our last edition, I ran through Dr. Gunderson's extensive CV, Um, he is a a well-regarded, very well-regarded Academic who has published numerous papers, including studies of the cause of the American Civil War, the demise of the Roman Empire, and models of entrepreneurship. He's the author of The New Economic History of America and the Wealth Creators An Entrepreneurial History of the United States, described by Peter Drucker, the mentor of modern management, as brilliant, quote unquote. Um, he has won all kinds of fellowships, including the Earhart Fellowship. He's been on the board of trustees of the Connecticut Joint Council on Economic Education, the Educational Improvement Panel. He has served on the, as a member of the Central Connecticut State University Institute of Municipal and Regional Policy Board of Directors. And you've been a member of the advisory committee of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, Jerry. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that? That sounds very interesting. How did that come to happen? Well,
1: someone called me and said, you might be interested in this. And so I worked with them closely for several years. uh, And we were attempting to look at some issues as to whether all groups really had representation whether there was significant discrimination against certain groups, and uh, it was a fascinating run of things. We went all the way from uh, one member of the committee who had actually been a Eskimo in Alaska through other members who were Jewish. And so in each case, we heard stories about how discrimination or uh, otherwise things of that sort might work. and it was it was an interesting process as an advisory group you can't change the world but you can learn and you can tell other people about things. And so it was a good experience for me.
0: Yeah, I bet it was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I always find these um, as disheartening as, as it can be to hear about things that happen. I, I find it sort of heartening always that there are so many of these committees and boards because, to me, it really does speak to this country's deep, deep commitment to eradicate Mm -hmm. That sort of any kind of bigotry, any kind of discrimination, the fact that all of us agree that this sort of behavior is so pernicious and so wrong and that we are willing to, as a society, put our tax dollars behind all kinds of boards and commissions and committees and not just that, but advisory committees to advise the committees that can change the law's
1: Yes. You know, it yeah. really,
0: it, it yes. speaks to who we are as a people, and I always appreciate that. What I've also been fascinated by and why I was so delighted we were able to uh, keep you for two separate conversations is uh, is all this, uh, the, the academic papers that you've written and the books, because I have been curious about all your work with entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and how you go about, uh, in a sense, studying something like entrepreneurship, which is, to me, very, very fascinating. Um, and, and so when you go about measuring this or thinking about it, how do you define it mm-hmm. and what do you do with it?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the answer is you do a lot of demystification because there are some common ideas about it that can be misleading, Uh, The first thing is you define it, and defining uh, what entrepreneurs do is that they create new forms of value. Values are things that people pay for that they would actually choose given some alternatives that they might otherwise have. Uh, And so entrepreneurs do that, and the first thing you want to say is if it's value, it's not just high tech, it's not – Uh, just industrial production. It's the whole range of human activity. And so uh, when we talk about entrepreneurial examples in class, I like to tell the students about entrepreneurs in, uh, say, government. And you can talk about someone like William Penn, who introduced more choice uh, and freedom into the American colonies as a way actually of enhancing his own colony. Or you can talk about people in the arts or other areas that are entrepreneurial in the sense that they create value. Uh, One of the other things you do uh, is you point out that entrepreneurship is seldom kind of just this genius flash. It's really hard work. Uh, Entrepreneurs have an expression, which is that, In two years or so, you can kind of find out where the lemons are, but it takes about five years to discover where the where the plums are.
0: So, can Uh, you can you sort of elucidate?
1: (laughs) Well, the answer is that uh, real value takes deep effort, and it's not something that you can just conceive of and and uh, run off with it. There's no typically eureka moment. In which it happens. You start with ideas and you end up with incremental innovations and changes over time. And if you look at uh, one measure of this, you, what you can do is you can look at cost curves of new products. That it typically takes decades for all of the innovations to drive the cost of an expensive product down to the level where it's commonly available. You can think, for example, the standard model is the the Model T from Henry Ford, and he starts out in the first decade of the 20th century with a vehicle that still costs more than $1,000, and that's quite a bit in, say, 1905. But by working at it, you see the cost coming down. There's innovations in product design and in production and supplies. He's actually one of the first, uh, what we call, in time delivery operations, so that by the 1920s, the that vehicle is selling for $200. Same, same vehicle, the Model T.
0: And do those include innovations? Do I remember him being one of the first to think of a, an assembly line? Are those the kind of entrepreneurial innovations you're thinking that of? That
1: includes sure. that. That was one of the things. Actually, he borrowed some of those ideas. And entrepreneurs typically are not lone wolves. They usually have... Collaborative efforts. They uh, incorporate a lot of ideas from elsewhere. Um, You could argue that a better model of assembly lines was the packing plants, which had already been developed before Henry Ford started turning out automobiles. Uh, So entrepreneurship is an activity in which people put effort into uh, when they see it worthwhile. That's an important point. We need to remember that you're going to get innovations and you're going to get improvements and you're going to get the creation of value when people find it worthwhile. If you put up a lot of barriers or restrictions or things of that sort, you get less of it. It's as simple as that. We know that if you tax an activity, you reduce its value and you get less. Uh, and so entrepreneurship is that way. And quite frankly, Connecticut has lost... Some of our attractiveness to entrepreneurs because of the policies they have. High taxation, a lot of regulations, and some other things that tend to get in the way. Uh, And so there are other places where you now see more innovation. And what's kind of uh, sad about this is that in the 19th century, Connecticut was the center of innovation. That's where we get the word Yankee innovation.
0: Yes. We had
1: that for I, a while.
0: I, I, and, you know, you see all these uh, towns like, you know, this used to be. I know New Canaan, I think they made shoes. And mm-hmm. then there are other cities that were like the Brass City. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they made bells somewhere else. And, and it just, it, it it is, it's such a shame because it's wonderful to see all the different ways, human ingenuity, human creativity, and just that desire to, to, to take things and make them better. All the different ways that can be channeled when it isn't just squashed out of existence by a government that just uh, takes too much or just makes living your life too burdensome and too difficult.
1: Agreed. Yeah,
0: and uh, and and it it's so unfortunate, um, and and that's why you know even uh, to take a more modern example, I always wonder if people are being fooled when right now you know they talk about how all, there are all these gas leases where all these oil companies could be pumping if they would just go and do it, and I think I wonder if that ever fools anyone because you know you can have the gas lease, but if you make it so expensive. To do it, if you have to get so many permits and you have to do it with so many little burdensome details that by the time you've checked all the boxes, it isn't even worth your while. Exactly. Like, why would you want to do it? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think, I wonder if anyone falls for that excuse. I mean, I'm sure someone does, but it's it's so misleading. And so, anyway. Um, So, will you talk for a minute? uh, One of the things you, you, mentioned was entrepreneurship and art. Mm-hmm. And can you, does an example come to mind? Because that sort of kind of caught my my ear, because you don't usually think of entrepreneurship and art in the same breath. I mean, I don't, at least. Mm-hmm. I usually just think of art as something that sort of like Athena just f- springs fully grown from someone's mind, or at least as part of an artistic process. Mm-hmm. And, and so what, what is an example of entrepreneurship in art?
1: Well, one of the best examples was the, the sort of Dutch development of painting. I mean, uh, in the past, artists had to have some support of... of like a patron? Yeah, a patron or king or something like that. Um, but what happened in Holland was that you had a large uh, middle class... You had income and if you look at many of the Dutch artists who pioneered their flower uh, reproduction and all of that, uh, they sold the markets. This, there was a market developing for good art and that encouraged them and of course you see that continuing on later too with the English and the French as well. Okay, So um, you, you, you get that, um, you can find markets for entertainment. Obviously, the development of movies and and the Broadway stage and all of those was very much a response to the fact that people bought tickets. You could go see something entertaining, uh, which, you know, sort of was a nice break from the day. And um, we do it today, obviously. Okay. So
0: like Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, that was definitely sort of an entrepreneurial. I remember reading about that with the Blue Ocean.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, as a sideline, I'm going out to Las Vegas tomorrow because I have a conference there. And I'm looking forward to, among other things, some new forms of entertainment, one of which is the the technology which actually at Disney developed where you can pretend like you're going on a, a sky – what's the term I want? Uh, hang gliding tour –
0: Oh, and sail right.
1: over that. Disney calls it soaring.
0: Yes. So I, I, you uh, know, years ago I did the soaring over California yeah. when I lived in California. I'm a little put out with Disney for other reasons at the moment. I, I agree. Um, but uh, it was quite an experience where you sit in the um, the the seat and you do. You feel like you are hang gliding over right. with the big screen in front of you. Right. Yeah.
1: And then they followed up with a now soaring uses the whole world as their forum. The Las Vegas uh, soaring equivalent is based on going through a lot of the western national parks. Uh, but that technology is a combination of some very astute engineering, getting people to, you know, feel like they're up in the air and at the same time using massive photography in which you have this surround pictures. And so it's a combination of picking up technology, uh, picking up the opportunities, and then developing it into a way that gives people value.
0: Now, let me ask um, another question that occurred to me as we were talking about some of this. And you you, you referenced um, Holland and the Dutch and, you know, this burgeoning middle class mm-hmm. as being part of, of their entrepreneurship. And, you know... Does does entrepreneurship and its flourishing tend to have anything to do with um, the existence of a flourishing middle class? Or can entrepreneurship uh, – because it would seem to me that you would need a, a fairly wide swath of, um, you know, at least reasonably prosperous people – to be able to, you know, make it worth someone's while to come up with these new creative forms of achieving value, correct. And one of the things that sort of worries me is that as as societies get to a point where there is, you know, the squeezing out of the middle class, which mm-hmm. I think sometimes we we've started to see in places, especially like California, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether that will bring with it um, a concomitant sort of um, weakening of the incentive to be entrepreneurial because Mm -hmm. there will be, you know, there aren't going to be that many people to take advantage of the value you create and thus bring reward for entrepreneurial thinking.
1: Yeah, you're you're correct. I mean, entrepreneurs depend critically on markets and – one of the things that happens is, for example, this is a very simple rule of thumb. The larger the market, the greater the possible return from any given innovation. You have more customers. And so if you trace the history of where we associate with innovation, you start with ancient Greece, and then you kind of think of Rome, and then you go to the Italian cities, and then you go to the Dutch Republic, and then you go to England, and then you go to the United States. And what you're doing in each case is you're finding larger markets in successive uh, processes, and the result is that you find each of those becoming the technological leader of their time. Okay, What will happen now, of course, is that with the globalization, Uh, A lot of other places can tap into uh, that and you can use global markets as a substitute for small local markets. So here's your uh, answer for California. California gets increasingly screwed up. Uh, Entrepreneurs in California can sell their products worldwide. They don't have to depend just on a limited uh, market, which has been curtailed there. Yes, which yeah. is
0: fortunate in some ways. Um, and yet, you know, you see as things shift to the global market, and, and it is, it's wonderful in that it shows the the infinite genius, really, the mm. hidden hand of, mm. of the market. And then on the other hand, you know, when you look at American entertainment, and you look, again, to use our friends at Disney, <laughs> um, you know, you look at what has been done with our entertainment and how... Um, you know, how they're much more reluctant to infuse sort of specifically American values mm-hmm. into our entertainment. Mm. How, because you do have this enormous Chinese market, for example, yes. um, you know, there's reluctance um, to bring up certain things mm-hmm. and specific airbrushing out of other things. And, uh, and you know, it's it's just interesting. And you think, well, as important as it is, to To support all of that, there is always that tension, and you think, you know how great it is if we continue to please uh, have a healthy, big middle class market in this country so that we can continue to have sort of the best of both worlds
1: yes yes, I agree with that okay if If you get elites going off in their own direction okay uh, the the general market. Sort of gives opportunities for a lot. And there's still enormous numbers of people who would like to be entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things that uh, showed up in college classes is you would ask students, What would you like to be in 10 years? And the answer is about half of them would say, I want to be my own boss. Okay, I want to get some experience. Okay, uh, I'm going to learn on someone else's dime. You know, I'm going to dabble in enough of these fields so I know what they're all about. I won't be able to be an expert in every one, but I can I can learn enough that I can kind of see who's honest and who's productive. And then I want to start my own because that's really, you know, a very strong passion, the, the passion to create, to feel that you're contributing something that's special to others. Uh, and to feel that you're kind of developing a legacy of importance.
0: And I think, you know, it's a wonderful thing. And um, one of the things I've always appreciated in a lot of ways about American culture is that unlike in other societies where, you know, even to take the English, whom I like, you know, as a rule, and so much of our culture has come from there, um, you know, how the merchant class for so many years was sort of, held to be second-class citizens, mm-hmm. um, you know how here uh, selling and providing things of value to other people was never held to be sort of a second-tier way of life
1: yes. because
0: the wonderful thing about capitalism in so many ways is it's it's based on consent. You know, it's it's a meeting of the minds where both people decide on a voluntary transaction and then it goes forward, and business people are providing something of value to each other it's 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 in many ways in my view it's a noble if you do it honestly it's a noble way you're providing value you're providing a service or a good, and you're making the world better'
1: right agreed
0: and um you know that to me, that's been one of the things that really is a wonderful thing about America, and one of the reasons it makes me so unhappy when we have politicians who, for their own purposes, try and bash uh, business people. Mm-hmm. Now, if they're being dishonest or somehow not living by the rules of the market or breaking the law, that of course that's one thing. But on the other hand, just to bash people because they are, you know, business people, it, it just seems like it's really kind of Mm un-American.
1: You know, to demonize others without any reason whatsoever. Or for
0: their successor, like, I mean, I was delighted, you know, it's been shot down, but this whole idea that you would tax people on their capital. Mm. I mean, what a foolish, foolish thing, right? It's, it's, you know, it's one thing, you know, to have an apple tree and to tax the apples, but, you know, this whole idea to, to tax capital, it's like trying to take one of the branches of the tree so it can't even bear fruit. Right. I mean Correct. What a fool's errand yeah. and make everyone poorer. And that's the problem to me with all these sort of left-wing ideas. It's like, yeah, you're going to get a quality everybody equally miserable like Winston Churchill said.
1: Yeah, uh, Carol, let me let me add a thought to this that uh business people and entrepreneurs provide value and I think one of the reasons we get off track on this is we've got this expression called giving back. <laughs> yeah. Okay? And I think that's unfortunate because when people uh provide a good service, provide goods and services that are valuable, they have given something already. They haven't there's no deficit there. Uh the assumption, I think, is that somehow that's a you know a zero-sum game. One person wins and another person loses. That's not true. Uh, It's mutual gains, and the idea to give something back. If you want to contribute some of your resources for some cause, fine, that's your opportunity. You have that choice. Uh, and the more resources that you have generated, the more of those opportunities that you can exercise.
0: But you ought to be thanked for it straight out and not sort of shamed as though you're obligated to do it.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, someday I think we should, I, we could do a whole podcast on this role that a lot of people in our society are now like using shame in really unproductive ways but i appreciate that that's really true and i never thought about this whole yeah this giving back mm-hmm. and and like you took something that wasn't yours
1: yeah that that's not correct that's simply not correct
0: um so jerry as as we prepare to wind up here um you know in your career and all the distinguished scholarship you've done um you know Along with that, and, and as you've done all this work on economics and, and everything else, I mean, you've seen all these students over the years. And as you see see them go out in the world, has anything changed over time or is there any piece of advice that you feel like your students have found the most valuable or any other words of wisdom or parting thoughts you, you might care to share with our Listening audience, at why CT matters. <laughs> oh,
1: well, first of all, um, yes. What I've, I haven't found substantial changes in students. I mean, they're they're in an exploratory era. When you get college students, uh, this is their first chance to get away from home, and they're they're practicing being an adult with a lot of uh, learning going on at the process. Um, when I go to reunions, I sometimes shake my head and, and I'm surprised and say, uh, uh, did that person really make it? I didn't think <laughs> based on the classroom. I didn't expect that. But uh, from time to time, you get reactions coming back from students, and it's happened in the oddest ways. Uh, I remember being having breakfast in a cafe one time and a st- woman came by, and I didn't recognize her. And she said, 30 years ago, I took your class. And she said, you forced me. At that time, it was forcing rather than, you mm-hmm. know, Encouraging, happiness. yes. <laughs> you forced me to write properly. And I, that's a skill that I've kept, and I've valued it ever since. Or I'll get another one saying, oh, I remember that example. Uh, I had one student who was... And this is close to forty years ago now. Who came and said, "I still remember you saying that the optimal amount of pollution is not necessarily zero. That what we do is we make trade-offs in everything." What a wonderful lesson to carry into life. And so those are kinds of things that students remember. They forget a lot, as we all do. I mean, you can't keep your mind full of all the stuff that that goes through there. But they remember those vivid examples and they remember a few experiences where they pick up skills that they say, aha, later. You know, that's what it was all about. That's when I can use it. That's why it's important.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I have had some professors like that, and I am grateful to them and grateful for them. And uh, I can tell that you obviously were one of those. I've learned a lot in our conversation today, and I am grateful to you, Jerry, for having joined us on YCT Matters. And thank all of you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you or hearing you or having you with us on the next edition of Yankee Institute's YCT Matters. I'll show you around this place I call home.